You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Uh, my name is Ashley Santana. That was my husband that made the announcements, and we don't typically make a habit of matching on Sunday mornings, but um, shameless plug, we are working with kids, so if you have any interest in that, see one of us, and we will get you hooked up. Um, this morning, we are reading out of Ephesians 3, and if you don't have your own Bible with you or a device that you can look up the passage, there are two tables Um, about halfway down the aisle, that have a bunch of Bibles on them. And we really just want you to be able to see the Word of God and read it um, in front of you as we go through this message. If you are using one of these Bibles, it is page 918. Um, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thanks, Ashley. Let's give Ashley a hand. Man, happy Labor Day. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, I feel like it, I, I, I need to just say go Gators for some reason getting up here this morning. So um, it was a great game last night if you got a chance to watch it. But uh, I'm, I'm excited for this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Bill Vecchio. Uh, I actually grew up in Long Island, New York. And so that's where I came from. I used to talk, walk, and drink water, but my wife stopped me from doing that. And so um, moved down here for college and never left. Why would I? Um, it's beautiful down here. And one of the things I remember about growing up in Long Island is we had a place called Jones Beach. And Jones Beach is a world-famous beach. I mean, it's beautiful. And we used to go there, and I loved going to the beach. There we had these things called waves, um, which we don't really have a lot of here. Um, but there was a huge, like, undertow, and you'd go out, and there were these, like, flags that would tell you where the undertow toe was too bad. You would stay between the flags. And I remember numerous times as a kid getting hit by a wave and getting caught underneath that wave. And you honestly feel powerless. Like you feel like you don't know which way is up. Your body just starts spinning in circles and you're just like waiting till you can get another breath. And, and I, I was thinking about this this week as we're going into this passage in Ephesians 3 verses 
8 and 9, where um, about the ocean and, and standing on the boardwalk of Jones Beach, I mean, it's about, I would say, almost a half mile of sand before you get to the water. We're not used to that here. We have very, like, short spans of sand. It was like you would just walk forever and ever just to get to the water, and then you just look out, and it is just water everywhere you look. From, from both sides, there's no land on either way, it's just water. And I was thinking, like, standing there looking over that, that is literally like looking at a water molecule in an Olympic-sized pool. Our ocean is so big that that stretch of beach is just a speck in the grand scheme of our earth. I mean, look at this picture of, of the ocean. I mean, this is the lifeblood of our world. We, more than um, 70% of our, of our planet is covered in water. This drives our weather, it regulates our temperature, and it supports all living organisms. 94% of our wildlife on our planet lives in the ocean. 94%. 70%, over 70% of our oxygen is produced by the ocean. And over 80%, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, over 80% of our ocean is unexplored, unmapped, and unobserved. There's an estimated 3 million shipwrecks that have yet to be explored in our oceans. This seems unsearchable, which means we cannot wrap our minds around the place in which we live. And that's where we find ourselves today in this passage. So Paul is writing this letter to a church. He was a man that sought after the Lord after years and years and years of, of living as a religious Pharisee. And he persecuted the church of Jesus. He, he went after the church of Jesus because he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God. And, and so we come into this letter kind of right in the middle, but we have to understand that this, but Paul understood something that we need to understand he starts writing about these unsearchable riches. And the word he used there for unsearchable does not mean that he cannot be found. That's not what Paul's trying to get at here. The word in the Greek, unsearchable, means unable to fully comprehend, unable to wrap our minds around how big, like 80% of our ocean is unexplored. Like we can't even wrap our minds around that. Three million ships, like we can't wrap our minds around that. And that pales in comparison to an infinite, holy God who just with a word spoke and the ocean was there. And he pairs that word with this word riches, which these unsearchable riches, what it means is that he's, he pours out these blessings on his children that never ends. It never ends. So let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to start there. If you're just joining us today, what we're doing is we're just going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And so we started this in January, and so we're kind of coming into the middle of this, but I'm just going to break down verses 7 and 8 today. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your love, your mercy, your grace. God, you want to create something new and fresh inside of each and every one of us today. <clears throat> and so I pray as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts to who you are and what you have done for us. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So to understand the unsearchable riches of Jesus, we need to understand three things that we see here in this passage, these two verses. The first one, the magnificence of God. The magnificence of God. Look at verse 7. It says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his, what is that word? Power. So that word in the Greek is dunamis. And that word actually means miraculous power, might, strength. Like this is a magnificent God. He's so great that we can't wrap our minds around him. I want you to think of some of the greatest works of man that you could picture in your mind. Uh, who's been to Disney World? Anyone? Anyone been to? Okay. So Disney World is very different than other theme parks. I mean, we've been to Busch Gardens and Six Flags, all these places. But when you walk into Disney, Disney World, there is this castle that just seems surreal. I mean, it is huge. And like when you're looking at it, it almost kind of looks like a, a, a painting of something. Or you're walking the streets of New York City and you're looking up at these buildings that honestly make you dizzy when you look up at them. I don't know if you've been there, but you look up and like you start losing your equilibrium because they are so huge. And then the lights and all the billboards, I mean, it is just this wonder. you got the Great Wall of China and the pyramids. But then look at some of the things that man didn't make, but the things that God made. Look at Mount Everest. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Mount Everest, but like this, this huge mountain that only a select few of people have been able to climb and get to the top. Or the Great Barrier Reef that spans miles and miles. I mean, try to wrap your mind around the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever went to the Grand Canyon in person, but, but more than like the Disney castle, you stand in front of the Grand Canyon and you lose your breath. Disney, New York City, like the stuff that man can make, it like, it just doesn't even come close to the things that God made with his hands, that he spoke into creation. And in fact, the things that man made were only made because God spoke those men into being, those women into being. He's the one who formed them in their mother's wombs. And so the minds that put together the engineering to build these big structures were created by that God. So they couldn't even do that. We couldn't do anything that we do in our lives if it wasn't for God 
creating us to do those things. And so sometimes humanity, they put up these things and say, look what I did. And it's like, you, could, you couldn't dunk that basketball if it wasn't for God making your legs and your arms and you being probably a little over six foot tall. Right? We got these, these athletes that come in and they're like, look, I just hit this many home runs or I just threw this many touchdowns. And you're like, yeah, but those muscles were put on your body by God. And no matter how hard I work out, I'm not going to be the size of Tim Tebow. Like, I'm not going to gain an extra four inches unless I wear, like, big platform shoes. Um, like, God is the one who created us to make these things. And the work of his hands are more than, like, we could ever ask, think, or imagine. I mean, look at how David describes this. Because we're not even able to explore like the ocean that he placed on the earth, let alone like the skies. We, we talk about our solar system being X amount of light years across. We don't even know that. Like we're just guesstimating. Like we're talking about billions of galaxies, yet we can barely see pictures of like little dots. Because we are unable to see how magnificent he is. David, who's a guy after God's own heart, he intimately go, knows God in a way that we all should long for. In Psalm 8, he says, the sky is the work of your fingers. You set the moon in place. Babies tell of your strength. And he says in Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And he knew God in an intimate way that we should long for. And then there's Isaiah. He's a prophet. God saw a man that he actually invited and gave him a vision of the heavens that he can write for us in Isaiah 6 of what the throne room of God looks like. That's what we have recorded in our scriptures. And, and he says this in Isaiah 40, 10 through 12. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And with his hand, he marked off the heavens. He holds the dust of the earth in a basket. And he weighed the mountains on scales and hills in a balance. And what we do as humanity is we try to diminish the power of God, the dunamis. That's what humanity has tried to do since the beginning of time. Look at Adam and Eve. Look at the serpent that comes in. What does the serpent try to do and convince Adam and Eve of? That God is withholding from them. That God isn't fully for them. And that if they wanted, they could be just like God. So eat of this because you could be just like God. Like that, from the beginning of time, we've been plagued with this. Look at the Tower of Babel. It's not that the Tower of Babel was so big that God had to stop them from building it. It was the heartbeat or the mindset. Like our buildings now today are bigger than the Tower of Babel was. It was the mindset and the heart behind it where they thought we can do this in our own strength. If we come together as humanity, we can accomplish this apart from God. That was the heartbeat and the mindset behind this. I mean, look at King Nebuchadnezzar, a king that we see in Scripture, who, who saw the power of God save three boys from a fiery furnace 
and then all of a sudden is standing over his kingdom, looking out going, look at what my hands have built. Why do we have this thing inside of us that makes us desire to play God? I mean, today in our world with gender issues, abortion, global warming, and all politics, both left and right, we try to play God and say, we can fix this. We can do this. We can be who we want to be. We want to be in control. We want the power. And we want something other than what God says. We fail to understand and wrap our minds around the magnificence of God. Because we think that we could become in our own strength worthy and powerful enough to where we don't need him. And it will destroy us. It is already destroying our world. We want to accomplish in our own life what we want apart from God and his power. And here's what we forget. This is the second thing. To understand the riches of Jesus, we have to understand that unworthiness is required. It's not optional. Look at, look at verse 8. This is Paul. Now, we have to understand who, who Paul, like Paul was a, a rising star in that culture, if you will. You know like the top 40 under 40 that we have like in our area and then there's a top 40 under 40 in like America and like people aspire to be that and get their name on the list. Like this is the guy that the world looks at. Like the, the Elon Musk and you're like, man, like he is the smartest. He is the most gifted. Like the person that we can look at and say they're the most talented. That's what, who, what Paul was. He was a rising star in the midst of all of the religious leaders. Yet he began to understand when he was met face-to-face with the holiness of God, how unworthy he actually was. Look at verse 8. He says, To me, although I am the very least of all the saints. I mean, he had the pedigree. He had the family. He had the success. He had the notoriety. And he's saying, I'm actually the least of all the people that call themselves followers of Jesus. And then he talks about this grace that was given to him. He didn't think that he deserved it. He didn't think he was just in line to be the next guy to get the grace of God because he did all these great things. He didn't think he deserved this because he's sitting in prison right now and he's like, God, look what I did for you. I deserve this. No, no, no. He realized in those moments how unworthy he was. He says, I'm the very least of all the saints. Look at me for a second. All we bring to the table in our relationship with God is our sin. That's the only thing you bring to the table. You come to the table no matter how many accolades and trophies you have and participant ribbons you have in your room, 
the only thing you come with is your sin. And he accepts that and takes that away from you and adopts you as his child, giving you all of him, all of his inheritance, all of his glory. And he bestows that upon you through his work, not your own. Because all you bring is your sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, which we talked about weeks ago, he loved us so much that even though we were dead in our sin, dead in our sin, he gave us life by grace. You know, there, there are many factors that lead to a bad day. Has anybody ever had a bad day? Yeah? Anybody have one yesterday? <laughs> um, there are so many things. I mean, it could literally just be you wake up in a bad mood. And sometimes you can't even, like, put a finger on why am I in a bad mood. I have four little girls. And sometimes I don't understand why, but, like, emotions run just slightly high in my house. Just a little bit. And sometimes my girls have a really bad day. They yell and scream and complain. No matter how much blessing we pour out on it, no matter what we give them, like they can whine and cry. Like you bring them to Five Below or a store for a toy and they want two toys. You're like, no, you can have one. And then they lose their ever living mind. And you're like, but I'm bringing you for a toy. But you know what? No matter how bad of a day it is, no matter them yelling and disrespecting and dishonoring, no matter what that looks like throughout the day, you know what I want more than anything at the end of the day? To snuggle with them, to cuddle with them, and to enjoy them as their father. Like, all of that stuff, all of that ick. Like, at the end of the day, when I crawl into bed or sit down on the couch with them, I just want to hold them close. We have some bad days. We make some really bad decisions. We do things that we know not only will break his heart, but that will lead us into death and destruction. And no matter how bad it is, God still wants to hold you. He still wants to wrap his arms around you and tell you that he loves you. That does not mean that there won't be discipline. That does not mean that there won't be consequences. But he loves you and still wants a relationship with you as his child. No matter how good you are, you're still unworthy. And that's okay. In fact, if you think that you've earned God's love and you deserve God's blessing, you've missed every aspect of good news. That's the word gospel that we see in this passage over and over again where he says the gospel, that means the good news. If you think that you bring something to the table, you've missed it. But if you're sitting here today, and, and this is for whoever it may be, you may be in, in middle school or high school or college, or you may be in your uh, uh, latter years. If you sit here today and you think, I'm unworthy, what I have done is unforgivable. What I have done and, and seen is unlovable. 
guess what? You're actually in a really good spot. Because God loves you in all of that. And you're actually in a place that God brings his forgiveness. The person that puffs up their chest and says, look at me, God, you should love me, doesn't get it. The person that kneels down and beats their chest and says, I am a sinner, God is like, yeah, that's the one I want, that I want to wrap my arms around. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 103, 12. He has removed our sin, our unworthiness, as far from us as the east is to the west. God loves you. No matter what you've done, he wants to forgive you. But there is a process of us confessing our sin to him, coming before him and laying it out in front of him and saying, God, I am sorry. He pours out unsearchable riches of his blessing. And now here's the third part, because this is super important, and I'm just going to say it. This is cheesy. This next point is cheesy, and I'm okay with that. I was sitting there. I thought I came up with this, and my wife said, oh, no, that's out there. But um, it's cheesy, and it's okay. But here it is. The unsearchable riches of Jesus are his presence, not his presence. TM, that's mine. All right? Are his presence, not his presence. So often we try to box God in and belittle God to only if you're giving me good things, then like I feel like, like you love me. It's his presence. Paul is sitting in a prison cell. Like Paul has walked through shipwrecks. There was times where he was going to share the good news of Jesus with people and he was beaten and dragged outside of a city. And when he came to and kind of woke up from whatever was going on, the presence of the Lord was so near to him that it caused him to get up and go back inside the city to share that same good news. What God, the unsearchable riches that God gives his children is him. He is the treasure. His presence This is not the prosperity gospel. Often people will look at this scripture and say, yeah, God is just going to bless you with all of this material stuff. No. The prosperity gospel says this. If you give your money to God or your stuff to God, God will give you more money. The unsearchable riches is speaking about Jesus as the treasure. Not about the stuff. The real gospel is not that God gives you stuff but that God gives you himself for all of eternity, that you get to be in his presence forever with him. He is the prize. And he says this numerous times in scripture. I love, like if if we break this down, Leviticus 26, 12, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 37, 27, and then Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. So said by four different people, Right? Leviticus, some say that maybe Moses wrote it or there's some other prophets that wrote that. Then you've got um, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and then Paul himself. And all of them say something very similar to this. This is God speaking. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God wants you. 
He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to go through the motions and put on this mask of religiosity. He doesn't want your morality. Now, here's the thing. Let me, let me speak on that because I think that uh, this may be a side tangent, but I think it's important that we understand this, that when I say he doesn't want your morality, that doesn't mean you just go live and do whatever you want to do and he doesn't care. That's not what I'm saying. Like, if you don't do what God says in here, you will only be led to death and destruction. God knows what will bring life and God knows what will bring death. And so he gives us his word and he says, don't do these things because if you do these things, you will die. But if you do what I say and you honor and obey my word, then you will experience life and life to the fullness. So we have to understand that although it's not about a morality game, he still desires for you to live out what he says because he wants what's best for you. There are so many consequences in our life, so much destruction that will happen if we don't do what God says. And so he's reminding us in these moments, look at what Paul's saying here. He says, though I am the very least of all the saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now, this book is written to mostly a Gentile community that were not Jews, but Jews are reading it, and they're included all throughout this, this letter. And so he's not just speaking to the Gentiles. He's saying to all people, I've been called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's about his presence, not the things he gives you. And it's so much easier, and, and I want to recognize this, that it's so much easier to... Um, not our heads in agreement to God's power and his presence and his greatness when things are good. But when they're not good, it's very easy for us to start shaking our fist at God and saying, why, God, why would you do this to me? Or when, God, when are you going to pull through? Like those are the things that we begin to, when things are not going the way we want them to do, God, let me tell you how to do your job. How is this going to happen, God? And we fail, we fail in these moments to forget who he is and what he has done. I want you to think about that. In the moments when things are bad, and I know some of you are sitting in those things right now, the why and the when should pale in comparison to the who and the what. Can I say that again? The why and the when, the things that cause us to shake our fist at God, pale in comparison to the who and the what. Who he is is a magnificent God. And the what is that that magnificent God knew we were helpless and hopeless. And so what did he do? He came down in our hope, hopelessness, in our brokenness, wrapped himself in human flesh, and died a horrific death so that our relationship with him could be restored. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why this verse that we're reading here is so important for us to memorize. Let me read this to us again. Verse 7. The gift of God's grace. Make this personal. That was given to me by the working of his power. To you by the working of his power. To me, to us, 
though we are the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the world, to the nations, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in that we see our response. We share his unsearchable riches as they overflow out of our lives. I don't know if you've seen a picture of Niagara Falls, but this picture is going to come up. 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. I tried to type it in in gallons, and I, I couldn't even compute the number. 3,160 tons of water every second flows over these falls. This doesn't even come close to how God pours out his love. It doesn't even come close to how God pours out his love to his children. But it's him. He is the treasure. And if we're looking for him to give us stuff, we're missing it. If we think this life is supposed to be cushy and we're not supposed to have any problems and we're gonna, supposed to you know, have all the stuff that we want, that's just an American mindset. Man, when I've spent time in Haiti, I've spent time in Guatemala, I've spent time in the Dominican Republic, and we have gone to the poorest places on this earth. And there are some of the most joyful, filled, satisfied people that I've ever met in my entire life because they know Jesus and they have none of the stuff. There was a little boy, his name was Minister, that I, I picked him up in the back of a pickup truck. His hair was orange, and his belly was distended from all the worms that were inside, and you could see his rib cage. And I handed him a granola bar. And he took a bite, and then he looked around to see if there was any little kids that needed some food. And he started offering it to other people. He was starving. Yet he was looking what it meant to share. I was in Mexico, and I had these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's what you eat on mission trips, apparently. And there was this one little kid, and he was so hungry, and they were sitting there, and so I handed him this sandwich. And he broke off just a little piece off the end, took a bite, and then gave it to the next kid. And they took a bite and gave it to the next kid, and took a bite and gave it to the next kid. And if my kids were hungry... And they were sitting there with their four sisters. Chances are they're running away with that sandwich. I know we chuckle about that, but that's the culture we've created. Because we make it all about the stuff. But when we begin to sit with the word of God, when we begin to pray intimately to God who is our creator, that begins to overflow out of our lives to our spouses, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends at school, to our teammates. As he pours out his unsearchable riches of who he is into our lives, we can then have it overflow. Amen? I want to invite up a friend. Her name is Amelia Horbath. Can you give her a hand? I consider, 
consider Amelia like one of my daughters. She lives across the street from our house. Uh, her and her family have been coming to FMCC for years. Um, and um, her dad is one of my best friends, Mike. He doesn't like to be talked about from the stage. He said, never do that, but I love you, Mike. Um, and uh, we have the honor and the blessing of knowing Amelia. She gets to come over and play with our girls often. And um, she started sharing that uh, God was stirring in her heart to help out some of the friends and uh, schoolmates that she has in her school. Uh, in Tanglewood Elementary School, where she goes, there are some families that are dealing with homelessness right now. And so this was Amelia's idea. This is something that she did. And I asked permission to her mom um, if she would be willing to present this to our church so that we can rally behind her in what God is doing in her life and the overflow of what God is doing in her life um, to impact her school. And so she's going to read a little letter for you. I'm going to hold the mic for you so you don't have to worry about this. Check, check. You good? Um, she's going to read this to you. Um, I go to Tanglewood Elementary School, and I have a lot of friends there. I just found out that 15 kids who go to my school are homeless. They don't have a place to call home. I don't know where they sleep at night. This isn't something I've ever thought of about before because I have all these things and so much more. When I heard this sad news, I wanted to help do something about it. My mom said we have two choices here. One, go to the store and buy everything they need ourselves. Or two, spread the word throughout my community and make a bigger difference. Although I don't know who these kids are, or even though I may have already met them, I hope that by giving them what they need, it will bring joy to their faces. I want them to be able to come to school feeling happy and blessed. I don't think I will ever know how they feel, but I would like to think that if I were in the same situation, someone would want to help me. If you feel the need to help these kids like I do, please help me collect the items below. Toothpaste, packages of socks, packages of underwear, shampoo and conditioner, soap, hairbrushes, deodorant, and reusable water bottles. All of these items you collect will be placed in the giving closet at my school. The children in need of these items can visit the giving closet anytime. They want and take anything they need. Now we may have 15 homeless students, but that is just my school. If I collect more than what's needed for the kids at Tangwood, I will be sure to share your donations with the other local schools who give the kids in need. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Um, so what we're going to do at this time is the band's going to come back on up, and um, we have some ushers that are going to come forward during this time of worship. We don't want you to give under compulsion, but if you feel led to give towards us everything that we collect in these baskets, um, that is cash, as well as if you have checks and you want to write out um, a check to this uh, in the memo line, just put Tanglewood so that we know for our accounting purposes. Um, we want to help them and rally behind them. As well as, as you're leaving, um, uh, Amelia and Jana, and um, they'll be kind of out by those uh, do double doors on the way out, and they'll have lists. And so over the next two to three weeks, we're going to say, go to the store. And parents, I would encourage you to do this with your kids. Go to the store, grab some of the items that are on that list, and then bring it back here. We'll have a spot set up in the foyer that you can place all of these items in. Um, and then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do this as kind of a, a drive um, for specifically Tanglewood Elementary School. But my hope is that we have so much stuff that we can also bless um, some of the other local public schools in our area. Um, and so like, you, like she said, there's 
that what she knows of 15 students in her school, 15 families that are struggling with homelessness right now in one way, shape, or form. Um, and so we want to come behind them as the church. We desire to be the type of church that if we cease to exist, the community would miss us. And so we want to equip and empower our students and our people um, so that they can live out the gospel and let it overflow. This is just one of the ways. I'm sure there are people in your neighborhood, in your communities that you know need Jesus. And so let, it, let us overflow the love of God into the world around us. Amen? Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for placing this on Amelia's heart that she would uh, be compelled to come to her church and to her family and say, hey, we need to do something about this. I pray as her church that we would rally behind her and give her an opportunity to help these students and these families see, hear, and respond to your gospel. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being a magnificent God who receives us, loves us, forgives us in our unworthiness and pours out these unsearchable riches to all of us who know you as your Lord and Savior. If there's someone here today, Lord, that does not have a personal, intimate relationship with you, I pray that right now that you would stir in their heart a desire, a passion, a willingness to submit and surrender their lives to you. And that they would find a church home here where they can grow and be discipled to know and love you. God, we lift this all up in your name.